Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, convict us for all the instances that our anger, our passion, our zeal are misdirected to such insignificant things towards idols. Father, I pray that you would set our hearts on the most blessed truths that are unfolded with such clarity in this letter. And the, that with the Apostle Paul, we might say, far be it from me to boast, save in the cross of Christ. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. That famous British document, the Magna Carta, has as its fuller name the Magna Carta Liberatum, meaning the Great Charter of the Liberties. The book of Galatians has sometimes been referred to as the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. And indeed, if there's a document more worthy of the title Magna Carta Liberatum, it is this little letter. There's no higher liberty than that which Galatians unfolds, and there's no point in Scripture where it's unfolded with greater clarity than we find it in this letter. Luther referred to Galatians as his own epistle. He wrote, The epistle to the Galatians is my own epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my Katie von Bora, his wife. This wasn't simply for sentimental reasons, as so many will say about a book or a passage of Scripture today. Oh, that book's my, uh, it's my book, it's precious to me. Now, the reason why Luther would say such a thing is because both the message and the mood of Galatians were his very own. It was Galatians, in Galatians, that Luther found the doctrine of justification by faith unfounded with greatest clarity, 
And it was in Galatians that he found an example of the fervor with which that truth is to be guarded. In his beloved commentary on this letter, Luther wrote, If we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose simply everything. Hence, the most necessary and important thing is that we teach and repeat this doctrine daily, as Moses says about his law. For it cannot be grasped or held enough or too much. In fact, though we may urge and inculcate it vigorously, no one grasps it perfectly and believes it with all his heart. So frail is our flesh and so disobedient to the Spirit. Now Luther was a passionate man and often that passion could be expressed sinfully. but it also could be expressed gloriously. And nowhere more gloriously than whenever it was an echo of Paul's passion as we see it in this letter. This is easily and indisputably Paul's most impassioned letter. Timothy George's introduction captures this wonderfully. He writes... Jerome once said that when he read the letters of the Apostle Paul, he could hear thunder. Nowhere in the Pauline corpus is such stormy dissonance more evident than in the epistle to the Galatians. Though written from prison, Philippians is a love letter on the theme of joy. Romans reflects the considered objectivity of a master theologian reveling in the doctrines of grace. Ephesians is an uplifting commentary on the body of Christ. Even the Corinthian correspondence, though obviously written out of great personal anguish and pain, revolves around the great triad of faith, hope, and love. With Paul's hardships and concerns set over against his greater confidence in the God of all comfort who causes his children to triumph. In 2 Corinthians 13.12, Paul could admonish the believers in Corinth to greet one another with a holy kiss. But Galatians is different. From beginning to end, at six chapters of 149 verses, bristle with passion, sarcasm, and anger. True, there is a touch of tenderness as well. Once in the midst of the letter, Paul referred to the Galatians as his dear children. As the context reveals, though, this was the tearing tenderness of a distraught mother who must endure all over again the pains of childbirth because her children, who should have known better, were in danger of committing spiritual suicide. Paul was astonished and perplexed by their departure from the truth of the gospel. He feared that they had been bewitched and deceived. In his frustration, he dubbed them, as J.B. Phillips translated, "...my dear idiots." Saints, never does Paul speak with such passion as he does in this letter. May this be an example to us of the preciousness, the glory of these truths, and the zeal with which we should seek to proclaim and defend them. From the very beginning, do we not sense something of Paul's zeal? All the niceties are here, but every point, at every point relative to his theme, he expounds. 
It's as if he's a bomb ready to explode. Words set him off. And first we see him expound on his apostleship in verse 1. And then in the remainder of this greeting, every point relative to his theme, he expounds on the gospel. Now, ancient letters always open identifying the writer, followed by identifying the recipients. And Paul, in these introductions, often identifies him, not just himself as Paul, but by his office of apostle. To be precise, in nine of his 13 letters, he does so. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Finally, Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, this way of introduction serves to put forward his authority. And though Paul, you saw in this survey, may expound on his apostleship to some degree, never does he do so as we see in Galatians. Never with kind of the vigor, the kind of angst that you sense is underneath it. it, it it's as though Paul is defensive. He, he's irritated. And indeed, he is defensive. He is irritated but not in a kind of personal way. Paul is not a recent Ph.D. grad. Zealous that everyone give him the due recognition, insisting that even his family refer to him as doctor. It's not what Paul is at here. He's not after a title, but he's after his office being recognized so that what he writes stands with the authority, the very authority of Christ. Paul is zealous for his apostleship because he's zealous for the gospel. See, an apostle was a sent messenger of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The sending, speaking, authority aspects are evident in Mark 3, where we read that Jesus appointed twelve whom he named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. They were appointed directly by Christ. They were then sent by Christ. They heralded the words that he instructed them to preach. And they were given authority to do as he instructed them. Acts 1.22 further makes clear that the apostles had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Now, throughout the scriptures, we see this pattern of prediction, action, interpretation. God tells us what He's going to do. He does it. And then He tells us what He's done, explaining the significance and meaning of it. God does not leave His acts open to interpretation. 
Jesus is the final and supreme word from God. Hebrews opens telling us that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son. In Jesus, God acted. And Jesus, through His apostles, explains the meaning and significance of that final act of redemption. The apostles are the apostles of Christ who is the last word. And as His messengers, they give the last word on the word. So it is in this way that the apostles are said to be the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 With Christ Himself being the cornerstone. You see, the foundation is Christ altogether because what the apostles are as the foundation are the apostles of Christ speaking Christ, unfolding Christ for His church. And so in Ephesians 3, Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so the reason why Paul is zealous for his apostleship is because he's zealous for the gospel he was entrusted with. You see this in verses 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what's behind Paul's words whenever he says that he didn't receive this from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The source, the origin of his apostleship is not man, and it was not mediated through man. Whenever any man called to be an elder, a pastor of a particular church is called by God towards that, it is always mediated. The call is always mediated. There is that desire for that office that's impressed upon him, and it can be impressed upon him through the preaching of the Word, through discipleship, through some means it's impressed upon him, but then it's further mediated in that the church is to recognize and to test and to train and affirm that sensed calling and desire. But the apostles receive a direct and immediate call from Christ, the Son of God. Their calling is like that of Moses. At the burning bush. It isn't mediated. It is a direct call. And some are puzzled that although Paul says his apostleship was not from man or through man. He only says that it was through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Not from. But you shouldn't be troubled by this. It's understood that Paul is saying both when he goes on to the second. Because God acts as no one's mailman. It isn't as if. 
This calling of apostleship was communicated through them, but it came from some higher source outside of God, as if God was acting as a a mediator on behalf of another. Whenever we're told that Paul's apostleship came through Jesus Christ and God the Father, rest assured that it is from them at its very source. And then further, you notice how the divinity of Christ is affirmed in this? His apostleship is not from men or through men. It's through Christ, who though man, is more than man. He's the God-man. And Paul's conversion and apostleship were simultaneous. In Acts 26, he recounts his experience where he saw Christ in His glory shining brighter than the new day sun, and he asked, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me. I've appeared, the resurrected Christ, that you might be a witness of the resurrected Christ. And that you might be, he had to see the resurrected Christ and be appointed by the resurrected Christ to be an apostle, you see? Jesus goes on, a witness to those things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive... Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was taught Christ by the resurrected Christ that he might preach Christ. That's the kind of uniqueness that's involved in being an apostle of Christ. Further, this apostleship comes from the father, note, who raised Christ. Paul is not testifying of a dead Christ. He's not reading a last will and testament. As an apostle of Christ, he speaks by the Spirit of Christ sent from the living Christ. Additionally, you see that this letter is from all the brothers who are with me, verse 2. And you notice in our survey of the introductions that we looked at, Paul often includes others with him. Most often it's Timothy six times. Silvanus is mentioned a couple. Uh, Sosthenes once. Of those five letters in which Paul does not include someone in his opening greeting, in four, greetings from others are included at the end of the letter. And so it would appear that only 1 Timothy is then a really private letter. That is, until you read the last sentence of that letter carefully, and you note that the best way to translate the closing sentence of 1 Timothy into English is that it ends saying grace to y'all. The you is plural. And so you realize that every one of Paul's letters were were circular in a sense. They were never a kind of private communication. 
And that helps you understand that this is not about authorship whenever Paul includes these other persons in his greetings. There's multiple overlapping reasons why Paul does this. First, they simply send their greetings along with Paul. Here's this letter coming, and it's from Paul, and he's sending greetings and others with him too. And in every other letter, it's most likely, it appears as if those he mentions served as secretaries, the fancy word as an amanuensis, that as Paul dictated his, his letter, they recorded it for him. And not only that, but very likely they served as emissaries for Paul as well, delivering that letter, acting as the official interpreters, explaining what Paul was meaning by that. You see, whenever Paul includes these names, it lets you know this also. Who is Paul conversing and thinking with as he's writing this letter such that they would know what Paul meant by these words? Further, it just again explains that every one of Paul's letters was circular. And the circularity didn't begin with the recipients. It actually began with Paul in writing the letters. They began circulating right then. And so this serves to, for you to also realize who's nodding their head as Paul is saying he's an apostle and unfolding the mystery of the gospel. And so, again, in every other letter, two at most are mentioned. And they most likely served as secretaries or emissaries or both. But here Paul includes all the brothers who are with me. Why does he do that? All the brothers who are with me. Well, you see how this serves to bolster his apostleship? He says this to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul's apostleship is not from men or through men, but be, let's be clear on this, that men as they are new men are the mark of Paul's apostleship. The outward manifestation of it. Let us not be zealous for titles alongside our name. But let's be zealous that the apostles of Christ be recognized as such. Why? Because of the titles of our Lord. Jesus, the Christ, Son of God, our Savior. There are no other apostles save those the church was founded on, whose testimony we have in Holy Scripture, and by no other means can we access it. For any to claim apostleship now means for them to claim revelation. And it means for them to say that the word on the last word, Jesus Christ, was insufficient and we need something more. And if you don't think that's pertinent today, one way we see this in what is called the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR. We've spoken of this before with groups like Bill Johnson and Bethel Church in Redding, California, now boasting some 9,000 plus members. 
and it has made deep inroads into evangelical churches by means of Bethel music or Jesus culture. And they lay claim to nothing less than apostleship by many of their leaders. God has spoken. He has spoken supremely in His Son. And then the last word on His Son comes through the Son's messengers, His apostles, so that their word is the very word of Christ concerning Christ. And we need none other than Christ. In Him we find our all. God has spoken. Let all would-be apostles be silent. Now we come to the recipients of this letter. Galatians is written to a group of churches, the churches of Galatia. This is the only letter that Paul wrote that is not addressed to a singular entity, either a singular church or a singular person. Here he writes to a group of churches. While Paul intended for all of his letters to be circular, they were always directed, focused, specific in what they were teasing out. But only here... Are they directed towards a group of churches? Galatia at the time referred to a Roman province that would today swallow a big chunk of central Turkey. In the third century before Christ, Gauls, a Celtic people, think of France, formerly was known that area as Gaul, Gauls from Europe migrated to north-central Turkey and established there the kingdom of Galatia. In time, that area would be conquered by the Romans, and Augustus Caesar would be the one who would reorganize a larger area into the province of Galatia. And so because of this, two theories have come about as to who this letter was written to. There's the northern theory that it says, that says it was written to those north, the, that northern area where the Galatian kingdom once existed that was predominantly made up of ethnic Gauls. And then there's the southern theory, which is far more likely, uh, in my opinion, that says it was written to those who were in those churches the, the Galatian churches involved here are those that Paul planted on his first missionary journey that you can read about in Acts 13 and 14, specifically Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And following this, Paul gives his typical greeting. But again, as with all the other elements in this introduction, it's untypical. The expected elements are there, but they're expounded on. Paul's greetings, though, are always untypical in this regard. The standard way of Roman greeting in letters was Cairo, meaning rejoice. Translated every time it's used that I'm aware of in the New Testament as, and used in this way, as greetings. Sometimes it's used verbally in that way, but we have instances where it's used in letters in this way. For instance, in Acts 23... We read Claudius, Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. 
James opens his letter with this means of salutation. Paul, however, uses the related word, but distinct in meaning, charis, grace. And he always weds it with peace, grace, and peace. This is a distinctly Christian way of greeting them, that it draws deeply on the Old Testament. We need distinctly Christian ways to address, greet, and speak to one another. I'm afraid that so many have largely disappeared because either we experience them as a kind of rote formality, where there wasn't any kind of depth of understanding of the gospel truths that underlied them, they were just empty and meaningless words and phrases, and or wedded with that, and perhaps the more decisive death knell to such language, was that the seeker-sensitive movement came along and said we need to rid the gathering of the saints from any language that might be confusing or alien or uncomfortable to those who are unbelievers. Well, I'm glad that Paul, in understanding that he's writing a letter to the church or churches, didn't use such reasoning. Paul's greetings are always untypical, but this one's untypical of what is normal for Paul and how he elaborates on these things. Only in Romans do I think we see Paul get so caught up in his introduction. But whereas in Romans, he's enraptured with his subject... In Galatians, he's enraged. All the standard elements are here, but they're expounded on with a kind of heavy emphasis. But let's just get in our minds first what he's intending by grace and peace. They may be the typical Pauline greeting, but that's not to say that there's throwaway words like, Hi, hello, welcome. John Stott writes, Paul sends the Galatians a message of grace and peace as in all his epistles, but these are no formal and meaningless terms. Although grace and peace are common monosyllables, they are pregnant with theological substance. In fact, they summarize Paul's gospel of salvation. The nature of salvation is peace or reconciliation. Peace with God, peace with men, peace within. The source of salvation is grace. God's free favor irrespective of any human merit or works. His loving kindness to the undeserving. And this grace and peace flow from the Father and the Son together. Luther wrote, The apostles' greeting is new to the world and had never been heard before the proclamation of the gospel. Grace and peace. These two words embrace the whole of Christianity. Grace forgives sin and peace stills the conscience. These two words, grace and peace, contain a summary of all Christianity. And here, Paul is writing to the saints. Saying grace and peace. You see, grace and peace 
or the need for the whole of the Christian life. Not just the beginning, but the whole of it. You were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved, and in all of that, you need grace. All of that stems from grace and results in peace. And all of this grace, all this peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only place that grace and peace can come. Any other kind of peace you may sense is only a delusion that will one day dissolve. What kind of real peace could one possibly have when they are at enmity with God? God Almighty, whose wrath abides upon their souls. What peace can be found there? And thus, the only place you can find refuge from God is in God. If you would have peace with God, you must have grace from God. And the only place that that grace can come from God is specifically if it comes from God and the Son. And there's grace found in the Son because the Son gave Himself for our sins. This is the central truth of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel. Salvation by substitution. The Son gave Himself for our sins. We have peace with God because grace can come from God because Jesus died bearing the wrath that our sins deserve. Romans 5.10 tells us we were reconciled to God. That's the language of peace. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So now I hope you can see why. Grace and peace are not throwaway words. They are not cheap words. They are blood-bought words by no more precious a blood than that that can be the blood of Christ. Oh, what it cost the Son that His messenger might greet His people with words such as grace and peace. Further, Christ gave Himself to deliver us from this present evil age. We have deliverance, not only from the guilt of sin, but the power of sin. This deliverance says we're in bondage, we're enslaved. Jesus said whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Paul said that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That cannot is the cannot of bondage 
and slavery to sin. This is our former way of life. This bondage to sin. It corresponds to this present evil age. The scripture often speaks of two ages. For instance, in Matthew 12, Jesus refers to this age and the age to come. This age is this world as it exists in rebellion against God, in bondage to its sins, doomed to be eternally under the wrath and fury of God. And the age to come is the new creation, the world eternal, reconciled unto God. Jesus, in His resurrection, is the first fruits of the age to come. 1 Corinthians 15. Colossians 1 refers to Him as the firstborn from the dead. We participate in that newness right now as spiritually we are united with Christ, dead and risen, such that that is the old man, dead, done away with, corresponding to this present age. And now we're resurrected in newness of life corresponding to the age to come. And so in Ephesians 2.20, you can see how Paul gets at this when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 6.14-15, he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me. This age has been crucified to me and I to this world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That in Christ, He's new. You're saved right now from right now. You no longer belong as a citizen of this world to this present age, but to the one to come. The future age is breaking into the present in the salvation of the saints as we participate in the resurrection life of our Lord by the Spirit delivered from this present evil age. And all of this, this grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ through the Son's giving of Himself to deliver us from This present evil age, all of this is according to the will of our God and Father. Some paint it as though a gracious and loving son won the love, wrestled the love out of a reluctant and wrathful father. But before the son gave himself The Father gave His Son. Romans 8 is astonishing when it says, He, God, did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. 
Ephesians 1 unfolds something for us of the Father's will. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. The Father did this. He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to, according to the purpose of His will with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Octavius Winslow asked, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. John Stott writes, It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it is God's wrath that needed to be propitiated, it is God's love that did the propitiating. He goes on. It is God Himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God Himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God Himself who in the person of the Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took the loving initiative to appease His own righteous anger by bearing it in His own self, in His own Son, when He took our place and died for us. And so with this, can you not see why it's so fitting that Paul untypically, but necessarily, breaks out into doxology at this point. Nowhere else do you seem to do anything like this in an introduction. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To the Father who planned such who did such, be glory forever and ever, amen. And here's the final reason why Paul is so impassioned in this letter, is that all glory be given to God by a right understanding of the gospel. Paul demonstrates this again when at the end of his letter he says, with a large hand in his own writing, far be it from me to boast, save in the cross of Christ. Do you sense Paul's passion? Can you see why it's appropriate even whenever you think he borders on saying the inappropriate? It is absolutely appropriate when others are saying that circumcision is necessary to your right standing before God, to say as Paul does, I wish that those who, would unsettle, that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Can you not see with this why Luther was often so bombastic in his language? It is because 
the battle cry of the Reformation was an echo of the message to the Galatians. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria, the five solas of the Reformation, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, are the very message of this book. And have you not heard it in the introduction? Scripture alone, it is upon the apostolic testimony that we know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is a gospel of grace and grace alone from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself to us. It's, it's this message of grace, and it's a grace to be that's, that is received by faith alone, the empty hands of faith alone, seeking to grasp nothing but Christ and Christ alone. And all this so that we might have no other boast than God and God alone who by the cross of Christ made a way of peace and grace. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, praise be to You. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for this great salvation. And may we revel in it. What we hate exposes what we love. And so, Father, may we have a righteous love of the gospel, so that when appropriate, we might have a righteous hatred and anger of all that which opposes the only means of grace and peace we can have. For the sake of your name, we ask this. In the name of your Son, Amen.